The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I'm often reminded of what an incredible era we have the privilege of living in, just especially in regards to just science technology, advancement, medical advancement. Like, I just marvel. And it's really little things that make me marvel at that. Like, I was just thinking back um, to when the iPhone first came out. And I remember they did that big reveal. Apple did the big reveal, and they had, like, the Apple executives on stage and had all the Apple people, like, out in the auditorium. And they're demonstrating what the iPhone was capable of for the first time. And I remember they showed the scrolling function of the iPhone that no one had ever seen before. Like, they're just flicking their finger, and it's scrolling, and everyone just gasps. I mean, it was amazing. Like, you'd never seen that. I remember the first time I saw some of the iPhone, I'm like, let me do the scrolling thing. I just want to see what it's like. It's like a magic, okay? And then they, they showed how you can do the thing where you zoom in and zoom out by pinching the screen, and it was just, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And I look at my kids, and I, I look at them like, what must it be like to just grow up in an era where that's like, they just, that's all they've ever known, you know? And I just, I know without being able to help it, that when they're like teenagers, I'm going to give them that speech, you know, when I was your age, we had to like move our finger around to dial the phone like this, okay, and wait for it to go back. There's like long spiral cords. You can't even appreciate it. I'm going to give them that speech. I can't help it, okay? I'm going to do that. Because for them, they don't know any different. Like to them, every screen is a touch screen. They're like poking my TV and stuff like that. I'm like, come on, man. Like just, you know, chill out, okay? So, but they, it's an incredible privilege that we live in this era. And I mean, we, we use science and technology and invention and advancement all the time. We use it every single day. In fact, our lives in a lot of ways are dependent on, on all of that. And not just for productivity. Like our, sometimes our lives are literally dependent on it. Like if there's a medical crisis, we're dependent on medical advancement. And so I, I think it's a godly thing to be just grateful for the era that we live in and be grateful for science and grateful for technology and advancement. And I think we should have a high appreciation for science. At the same time, I think because we're people of faith, we should have a high value and a high appreciation for the Bible because we believe it's God's word. But the problem is sometimes it seems like the prevailing views of science and what the Bible teaches, sometimes there seems to be a tension. And so if we're going to operate with kind of the premise of the series, faith and logic, we believe we are, God has called us to use the brains he's given us. We're supposed to be thinking, logical people. He, he wants us to be that. He made us like that. He wants to be thinking people, but he also wants to be people of faith. And as we're walking through this series, we've got to square up to one of the, the most difficult issues is what do we do with science and the scripture, especially when it seems like there's tension. More specifically, how do we deal with that question? I don't know if you've ever gotten this question before. I know I have. You ever gotten the question, oh, you read the Bible? Oh, do you think the Bible is literal? Like, what do we do with a question like that? What does that even mean? And if we're going to be thinking people, rational people, logical people, and people of faith, we've got to dig into this particular issue. And so we're going to square up to it today. So here's how we're going to do it. There's a couple different passages I want to look at, but one main text we're going to 
uh, dig into, and we picked this text because um, we think of this whole discussion, this is the juiciest. Like if there's one text where this tension becomes a fight, it's this one. So let's just go right to it. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, open with me to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, and let's look at what it says. This is the very first words in the entire Bible, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. Now we can stop there because that really introduces to us the, the rhythm and pattern of Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is really beautiful and it's expounding and expressing that first sentence there where it kind of summarizes what all of Genesis 1 is going to be about. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The big idea here is that everything that is in existence, God made it. And then it it, it expresses this pattern. It says it's going to start in each of these repeated sections. It's going to start with this phrase, and God said. And so here's what it's saying. It's saying this is what God did. He didn't look at all the material in the universe as kind of these scattered particles and say, okay, what am I going to do with this? No, there was nothing. There was not space. There was not a vacuum. It was just God and nothing else. Like, we can't compute that. And God spoke into the nothingness and things appeared. They obeyed. He commanded things to begin existing and they existed. And so like in Genesis 1, he said, let there be light and light appeared. It just, it just was created. And, and whenever he creates, as we go through Genesis 1, after he commands it to exist and it exists, then he announces that it is good. He's declaring it good. All of his creation is good. And then it closes that section by saying, and, um, and there was evening and morning the first day. And then he goes on to the next day and the second day. And then he creates. And then it says evening, morning, the second day. And then the third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And by the end of the sixth day, everything has been created. And then it says on the seventh day, he rested. And it's this beautiful description of God creating everything. So then that poses us as people of faith and people of logic. That poses us with attention. How are we supposed to take this passage faithfully? And there are those, because there are those that believe like, okay, this is saying that, that God created everything in six days and then there's the prevailing view of science that, that the universe is ancient, it's billions of years old. And so if we look at the evidence of science and we look at this, and sometimes it, it, we're like, okay, it seems like there's a tension. I gotta pick the Bible or science. 
And so let, let's dig into this, but here's where I want to start. Before we start digging into this, this whole issue, we're going to use Genesis 1 as kind of our anchor passage here. But before we get, dig into this, I want to say that even when I say, how do we be faithful to this text, I've already started playing some of my cards. Before we get into this discussion, I, I want to just be uh, transparent on my presuppositions that we're operating under. Because the fact that I'm feeling this compulsion, we feel this compulsion to be faithful to this, to this text, means that we already believe something about the Bible. So I think the most genuine and honest thing is just to share transparently the presuppositions we're operating under, the belief system about the Bible that we hold as the church. And you may not agree with this. You're welcome to be here. We're glad that you're here. But these are the presuppositions we operate on as a church. And it's, let's start with this. What does the Bible say about itself? I just want to show you a couple quick verses. What does the Bible say about itself? Let me show what this says. Let me just start here. 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this. All scripture is breathed out by God. Here's what the Bible claims about itself. It says, this is from God. This is not just a holy book. This is, this is God's words. He inspired very specifically humans to write this down, but it is inspired by God. It is from God. That's what the Bible claims about itself. So we've got to decide whether we believe that or not. It's going to be a step of faith. But I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that what this is claiming is true. Why? A large part is because of my personal experience. Man, there are, I mean, the things that the Bible has done in my life to transform me, I am convinced it contains some of the most miraculous, powerful, elegant truths that exist in the universe. I mean, it is powerful. There are times, it's so powerful when I'm reading the Bible, and I know that many here could probably attest this to their experience as well. There are times when I'm reading the Bible, and I feel like the Bible's reading me. And I'm struggling with something. I'm like, God, you got to help me. And I open up my Bible, and I'm like, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I mean, it just feels like it's alive. Because it's God's word speaking. In fact, that's sometimes why we refer to the Bible as God's word, because it is God's words. So the Bible, what the Bible describes about itself, it's inspired by God. If it's inspired by God, if this is from God, then that means this is the second thing that the Bible is authoritative. So if you're writing, taking notes, just write down what the Bible claims about itself. It's inspired, and if it's from God, then that means it's an authority. It's his word, so it's authoritative. And the Bible claims that. Look at what it says in Isaiah 66, 2. This is God speaking. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He starts by saying, I made everything. And then he says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my, what's that right there? Trembles at my word. He says, here's what I'm looking for. He says, someone who acknowledges if I'm the creator and this is my word, then they're approaching this book with humility, tremble, with, with trembling, with just kind of an awe and reverence. It's ready to submit their minds, their lives, their actions, their dreams their views, their values to what this says because it's from God. That's what the Bible claims. It claims that it's inspired by God. It's an authority. And if it's inspired by God, it's his word, God doesn't make any mistakes. So that brings us to the third thing. Look what the Bible says about itself. This is Psalms 1830. 
This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. What does this say about the Bible? It's perfect. It's true. There's no error in this Bible. Some put it like this. The Bible is inerrant, without error. So the Bible claims that it's inspired, it's authoritative, it's inerrant. And then it says this, it says, I love at the end of that verse, it says that it provides a shield. I I don't know about you, but aren't you so glad that in a world with all these different opinions, ideas, ideas, different teachings, that God has provided one pure, reliable source of truth that we can run to? The Bible is inspired. The Bible is authoritative. It's inerrant. And one last thing, it's clear. It's, it's not like a code that you have to crack. You don't have to, you know, know the original languages and be an expert in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek that it was originally written in to understand what this, what this is trying to say. It's clear. Anyone can read it and God will illuminate what it's trying to say. In fact, especially the more important the specific truth is in the Bible, the clearer it is. You know, the Bible says that there's a priority order. There are some things that are more important in the Bible than others. And let me just show you this verse. It's profound, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, what I'm about to say, this is the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here's what he's saying. This is the most important thing and it's taught cover to cover on every page of the scripture. This is the most important thing. Everything after this is secondary. And I'm so glad this is the most important thing in the Bible. Jesus Christ died for our sins and on the third day he rose again from the dead. Do you know what that means? I don't know what you walked in here today with, what fears and uncertainty, what guilt or what shame. Maybe you walked in here and said, man, it's been a while since I've been in a church. Man, man, if they knew what I had going on in my life, I, I don't think I'm like these people. I'm messed up. I don't even know if God wants me here. Do you know what this says? This is the exact opposite of that. It says that all of us are in the same boat. We all have sin. But Jesus was victorious over our sin. The creator enters into his creation. God in the flesh dies on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that all of your sin, past, present, future, goes on Jesus. He takes the punishment so that you can be washed clean and find forgiveness. Jesus accomplished victory over your sin. You don't have to carry guilt and shame over your past or present. You are in a permanent state of forgiveness if you put your faith in Jesus. It says more than that. I don't know what your, what your fears are walking in here. But it says that most important thing in the Bible is Jesus rose from the dead. That means he defeated death. That means one day if we are in Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus. When we die, we awake in heaven and we run into our Savior's arms. Aren't you glad that's the most important thing in Scripture and everything else is secondary after that? 
Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and he rose again on the third day. He, Jesus, brought victory into your life. He defeated sin and death for you. The Bible's clear. The more important it is, the clearer it is in Scripture. And so if, if that's true of the Bible, the Bible is inspired by God. That means it's the authority. It claims both of those things. That means God doesn't make mistakes, so it's inerrant. It has no error. It claims that. And it, cl it claims that it's clear. Then what does that mean? So when I'm going through my Bible and I, and I come across something that I'm like, wait, this seems like it contradicts this. Like, I, I don't understand. You know, how do I handle that? Or science says this, but the Bible says this. How do I handle that? Well, for starters, I don't freak out. This is inerrant. I am not inerrant. This has no errors. I do make errors. I find all the time there's things that I don't, there's some things I don't understand, but I don't freak out. I just wait patiently. And so often I found, oh yeah, that's not a contradiction. I just didn't understand. There's all kinds of things I don't understand and that poses no problems for me in my life. I, I still am not 100% sure I understand how Bluetooth works. <laughs> like, I don't understand how, like, my car is here, okay? I can play something here. It starts playing on my car. There's no wire, okay? Like, does it magically float through the air? Like, I don't get it. Like, if I have it up on, like, to my ear, is it going through my brain? Like, should I be concerned? Like, stuff's traveling through the I don't know how it works. That poses no problem for me. You can, you, can see, you can not understand how something works, but that doesn't mean that you throw it all out. Rest in what the Bible says about itself and know that it's okay that, that that's inerrant. That makes it okay that you might not understand because you and me, we, we are not inerrant. We have errors. So what does this mean then? The Bible is very clear. However, the more we want to dig into these details, especially these secondary details, I mean, the, the more important it is, the more clear it is. But the more we want to dig into these details, then here's what we've got to be prepared for. The more we dig into the details, the more conversant we have to be with the original culture in which it was written. You say, okay, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, Rebecca and I dated for uh, about three years in college. We got married out of college. And uh, I grew up down here in South Florida. She grew up in Washington, D.C. And after we got married, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, because we are both doing graduate work. She got her master's in social work. I was preparing to be a pastor. And so we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was the first time either one of us had lived in a city in the South, and it was, I mean, it was just really sweet time. It was a wonderful city, beautiful people, wonderful people, and had a great experience there for a couple of years while we were doing school. But there were some things about moving to the South that we had to learn in order to operate, you know, in this Southern city. So for starters, in the South, they have different values than I was used to. So one of the values in the South, they have a high value for friendliness, it's amazing. That is definitely not a value where I grew up, okay? They talk to strangers, like, for a while. I mean, it's crazy. Like, in South Florida, eastern seaboard cities, I mean, we value expediency. We get things done quick. I don't have time to talk to you. You're a stranger. I'll never see you again. Like, I got stuff to do. I got to get the things done. Like, they've got different values, okay? I had to, like, kind of learn those values. 
they talk different in the South. Like, they have, like, phrases and stuff that I had to learn to decode. So this one time, I, I had an appointment, um, and I was walking down this hallway, and there's this woman down in this, this uh, office I was going to meet with, and this guy comes out, and uh, before I go in there, he says, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. She's got a bee in her bonnet. I was like, so many questions. Why is she wearing a bonnet? Okay, and, and if there's a bee in the bonnet, like, shouldn't we go in and help her? Like, that sounds like an emergency. Like, what if she's allergic to bees? This could be a life or death situation, okay? Now, I learned that what he's saying is that she's, like, upset about something, okay? She's all worked up, and be, be careful, okay? Um, I remember I was talking to a buddy of mine, and I'm like, um, hey, you going to the thing this weekend, and he said, if the creek don't rise, <laughs> do you even live near a creek, okay? Like, and if it rises, is it that big of a deal? Like, it disrupts your transportation plans? Like, I don't understand. In fact, I still have no idea what that phrase means, okay? <laughs> so I had to, like, learn these different, these different phrases, and, and here's what I had to learn. I had to learn both, I had to learn how to communicate. I had to learn what they meant. I had to learn it so I could be conversant with it, to learn it. But the other thing is, I also had to respect it. I couldn't just say, well, that's weird. Like, I couldn't just walk into the office and, and like, yell back out to the guy, dude, there's no bonnet or bee in here. You're a liar, okay? No, what you're trying to say? No, I mean, what he said was true. I was just not used to hearing and receiving that truth like that. Just because the value or the communication method feels different doesn't mean it's wrong. It takes humility to learn and respect a different culture. Okay, that's dealing with another culture in the same country, speaking the same language in the same generation. Now think about how we got to approach the Bible. The deeper we go, I mean, on the surface, it's very clear. You can trust your English translation. Teams of experts, scholars, pour over the ancient manuscripts and just and give you a wonderful English translation. You can trust that it's clear. But if you're wanting to dig into some of these more finer principles, we've got to get more conversant because it's being spoken out of a culture that was in a different kingdom, a different people group, thousands of years ago in a different language. So we've got to be prepared to enter into that and we've got to approach it with sensitivity. So how do we then deal with this issue of is the Bible literal or not? Well, here's what we got to do. We approach it humbly. Is the Bible literal? Well, sometimes the Bible's literal and sometimes the Bible's figurative. Like, let me give you an example. Um, you tell me if you think this is literal or figurative. The most famous psalm in the entire Old Testament. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, is that saying literally, God is literally a shepherd. He's up in heaven. He's got like a little staff. And there's little sheep all around him, okay? And when you pray to him and you're like, God, you got to help me with my finances. Like, he's like, look, I'm a shepherd. What do you want me to do about your finances? I can't help you with your finances. You know, go talk to a financial. I mean, is that literal or is it, is it poetry? Is it a song? 
Is it trying to communicate figuratively something about God? What do you think, literal or figurative? Of course it's figurative. I don't know anyone who thinks that's literal. How about Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah? Is that literally saying when Jesus was walking around on the planet that he was this mutant, like, half lion, half lamb, and everyone's like, what in the world is that thing? Like, no, of course it's figurative. Why? You look at the genre you find it in. It's in prophecy, these beautiful descriptions with all kinds of poetic um, uh, imagery and symbolism. It's communicating something true about Jesus, but it's communicating it through figurative language. That's what the Bible, the, the, that's what the Bible says. Well, how about this one? The beginning of the book of Luke. Luke was a, uh, a physician. He was a doctor. And he's going to tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry in his first few verses. Go back this week and look at it. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, all right, here's what I'm doing with this book. I've put together an orderly account based on the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. What do you think that's going to be? Is that going to be literal or figurative? Literal. He's saying, eyewitnesses, this is literally what happened. So is the Bible literal or is it figurative? Here's how we approach the Bible. The Bible is the authority. It cues us in the passage. It cues us. It tells us whether we are to take that passage literal or figurative. It's the boss. It sets the agenda. We don't choose which passage is literal or figurative. The Bible shows us. Sometimes it's figurative and sometimes it's literal. I, I actually think when someone says, do you take the Bible literal? I actually think what they're really asking is this. You know, all those crazy miracles in the Bible, do you think those happened or do you think they were mythical? I think that's what they're asking. Do you think that those are like parables and metaphors or do you think they actually happened? Well, we submit ourselves to the Bible so where it says it literally happened, I believe it. If it says it figuratively happened, I take it figuratively. So let's start with the book of Luke. Luke cues us, I, I'm giving you an eyewitness account. Everything you're about to read is literal. So when it says Jesus was born of a virgin, I believe it. When it says that Jesus healed people, raised them from the dead, I'm like, that's crazy. But the Bible says it happened. Like, eyewitnesses saw it. It's not saying it's figurative. It's cueing me to take that literally. Then I believe it. When it says that Jesus rose from the dead, it's saying people saw this. So I, then I take it as, as literal. You might say, like, how can you take all those miracles as literal? Like, how can you claim on one hand to be a logical thinking person and then say you believe in miracles? Well, that's simple. If you believe in a God, all miracles are now on the table logically. If someone says, I'm an atheist, then I understand logically why you don't believe in miracles. But the moment you say, I believe that there is some supernatural being out there, then logically you just open the door to all miracles. They're no longer illogical, they're logical. If there's a supernatural being, anytime he wants to break into his nature supernaturally, he can. I have no logical problem there with miracles. 
I just have to decide whether I believe them. And so where the Bible says it literally happened, I'll take it literally. There's no logical problem. Where the Bible says it's figurative, I'll take it figurative. So if the Bible says that literally there was a guy named Noah and he built an ark and a floodwaters covered all over the earth, if the Bible says that literally happened, I have no problems with miracles. Miracles can happen. God could do it easily. So if it says it's literal, I take it literal. If the Bible says there's a guy named Jonah and he got thrown into the ocean and this huge fish like a whale swallowed him up and somehow he survived that for three days and then he got spit up on the shore, if the Bible says that literally happened, then okay, I have no problem. God could easily keep someone alive. Logically, that's no problem. If there is a sovereign almighty God who made everything and is all powerful, he can easily keep someone alive in a whale. I don't have to see it to know that that's logically possible because there's a God. So if it says it literally happened, I believe that it literally happened. I have no logical problem. But here's what I'm doing. I'm letting the Bible cue me. Because I'm submitting myself to the Bible, I'm letting it tell me, hey, this is literal, this is figurative. Okay, so let's get back to our text in question. Genesis 1. What are we supposed to do with a text like this? Because it seems like there's a tension between the scripture and science. Well, let me tell you what different um, scholars have done. There are some Bible scholars, and they believe the Bible's inspired by God, authoritative, they believe it's inerrant without error, and it's clear. And so they read through Genesis 1, and they say, I, I take it at face value. If it says God made it in six days and rested on the seventh, then you know, it, it doesn't matter, you know, what science may say. Maybe the earth looks old. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe the universe looks old, but I take it at face value. And those scholars say, look, I look through the rest of the Bible, and, and it keeps kind of reaffirming that God made it in seven days. It becomes the foundation of the week, of our, of our week, seven-day week, and it becomes the, the foundation for the teaching of the resting on the Sabbath. And they say, so I take it at face value, and they, I believe in, they would say, I believe in a young earth. I don't think it's billions of years old like science says. Then there's another perspective. There's other scholars, and here's what they believe. They believe the Bible's inspired by God. It's his word. It's the authority that we let shape our minds and our perspectives. They believe that the Bible is without error. It's inerrant. And they believe it's clear. And they open up Genesis 1 and they say, look, regardless of what science says, I look at Genesis 1 and I see this beautiful, uh, this beautiful poetic description of this key truth. God created everything. And they look at this and they say, I see some just beautiful poetry. And so they say, Genesis 1 cues me that it's meant intending to be figurative. You say, what do you mean by poetic writing in here? Well, for starters, I mean, look at just these repetitive loops over and over again. It's just repeating the same framework. There's beautiful symmetry to it. The other thing is, I mean, look at how they, if you go and you dig later this week, look at how they present the six days where God's working. They're parallels. Day one corresponds with day four. Day two corresponds to day five. Day three corresponds with day six. It's beautiful. Day one, God creates light. Day four, he makes the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, God creates the waters and the sky. Day five, he creates the fish and the birds. 
Day three, he creates the land and vegetation. Day six, he creates the animals and humans. They say, look at that, it's just beautiful. How about this? This is just, I think this is so elegant. Um, if you notice, there's a phrase repeated, and God said, that's repeated exactly, just like that, it's repeated exactly 10 times in Genesis 1. Now, historically, many believe that it was Moses that wrote down the first five books of the Bible. I believe that. Can you think of any other time when Moses recorded 10 statements from God? Is it possible that Moses, who received the Ten Commandments from God, is expressing creation with ten verbal statements from God so that we approach the Ten Commandments with the gravity of the one who's giving these Ten Commandments for our lives as realizing that it's the one who spoke the universe into existence that is telling us how we should operate and honor him? Is it possible? That's why it's expressed in these ten statements. Some of the church fathers, these historic voices that, um, that our, our faith has been so deepened by, um, St. Augustine or Origen, some of these, these fathers, they, they point out, well, look, they would say, I'm not sure these are supposed to be literal 24-hour days. And, they, and this was the evidence. They, they said, how could there be a literal solar day before the sun was invented? Later in, you know, Day four. So they say, I, I think this is the, I think Genesis 1 is cueing us to take it figuratively. But here's the point. The most important thing is that we approach Genesis 1 and we submit ourselves to Genesis 1 and let Genesis 1 cue us as to whether it is intending to be literal or intending to be figurative. And here's what both sides of the debate agree on. The most important part of Genesis 1 is who. Who made everything? More important than how is who. And so you may walk out of Genesis 1 and you say, Genesis 1 cues me to take it literal. Praise God. Submit to Genesis 1. Hold on to that. You may walk out of Genesis 1 saying, I think it's cueing me to take it figurative. Praise God. Submit to that. So long as we both walk out with what is abundantly clear, God did it. However he did it, he did it. So let me speak to you, because some of you may be on one side, some of you may be on the other, and let me just speak a caution to both, to both groups. Some of you would say, no, I take it literal, and you might describe, as many describe themselves, you might describe yourself as a young earth creationist. You would say, I believe God created the world. I think he did it in, in six literal days. I do not think the universe or the earth is nearly as old as they say. I think the earth is, and the universe is a, couple thou, a few thousand years, not a few billion years. And if that's what you believe, praise God. Stand firm on the scripture. Teach that to your children. But let me give you two cautions. The first one, remember what is of first importance. It's just the gospel. It's not the gospel and your cosmology. It's not the gospel and your young earth creationism. It's just the gospel. To be saved, it's not Jesus plus young earth creationism. It's just Jesus. 
And so make sure, however, whatever you believe, praise God, hold to it. But just make sure what you're teaching and what you're passing down to your children is first and foremost what is of first importance and let everything else be secondary. Young earth creationists, uh, let me give you a second caution. Make sure that you're submitting this to the scripture and you're not reading science into the Bible where the Bible is not intending to be scientific. That's not submitting to scripture. The Bible sets the agenda. Where it's intending to be scientific, submit to that science. Where it's not intending to be scientific, don't submit, don't force science into it. That's not submitting. Let me give you one moment in history where, the, where many in the church got that wrong. There were two Christians who happened to be scientists. And they, through their science, made this incredible discovery that the earth was not the center of the solar system with everything orbiting it. The sun was the center of the solar system and the earth orbited the sun. And so a guy named Copernicus, then even more validated by a guy named Galileo, both Christians use their science to say, no, the earth orbits the sun. They, they promoted a heliocentric view of the solar system, which is now widely accepted today. What happened was the church, it created this huge controversy among the church because many in the church were forcing science into a passage that were not intending to be scientific. There were parts in the Bible, there's places where the Bible says the sun rose and the sun set. And so the church would say, no, see here, the sun is moving, not the earth. Well, let me ask you a question. If you were to turn on the weather channel to find out when it was gonna get light outside, and uh, your weatherman said, sunrise tomorrow is at 7.30 in the morning, would you turn off your television, throw your remote on the ground, and say, I thought he was a scientist. Here he thinks the sun is moving and rising inside. Doesn't he know that, that it's a heliocentric view of the solar system? We're spinning on an axis and orbiting the sun? Of course not. You wouldn't say any of that. When we say sunrise, we're not betraying our science. It's a figure of speech. Please don't force science where the Bible is not trying to be scientific. Let the Bible say what it's trying to say. If you walk out of this passage and you're a young earth creationist, praise God. Some of you are going to walk out of this passage and say, you know what, I believe that this passage is intending to be figurative. And some of you say, and so um, I think there's room to be what some say evolutionary creationists. You say, I'm still a creationist. God did it. But I think that he used things that science is, is revealing. I think this is figurative. It's glorious. It teaches me that God is the creator. But uh, I, I don't think that this is trying to speak to exactly, precisely, literally how. Praise God. Submit to the scripture. But here's how I want to caution you. If you, want to be, if you feel compelled by Genesis 1 to be an evolutionary creationist, then here's my caution. Make sure you always remember that the Bible is inerrant. Science is not. The Bible is God's word. Nature is God's creation. They are what they are. But science is human's best guess at interpreting nature. And it's flawed. What do you mean it's flawed? Well, in 1949, for, to give you one example, they gave the Nobel Prize for medical advancement to the man who was inventing and promoting the lobotomy. You say, 
Now that's something I didn't think we'd be talking about today, the lobotomy. Why are we talking about the lobotomy? Well, science said it was the best uh, like medical advancement of its day, and I want you to know what they thought was so great. Okay, now buckle up, this is a little graphic. You know I'm squeamish, so if I can handle this, you can handle this, okay? If I happen to pass out, okay, just, I'm sure the band will come out and start playing or something, okay, but here we go. The lobotomy is, for those who had, uh, were struggling with mental health issues that seemed incurable, they would put them unconscious, they would lift up their eyelid, they would take a pick, put it under the eyelid against the top of the skull, hammer it through into the brain, swish it around to break some of the connective tissue between the two hemispheres, and pull it back out. And they swore, see, they, they have, there's so much, they've eliminated so many of their problems. <laughs> and they created a whole lot of problems by just swishing it around in their brain, okay? And now modern science has completely rejected the lobotomy. It is, it is considered completely even unethical. But there was a day when that was like the greatest advancement in science. You've got to know that there is some version of the lobotomy, some other type of lobotomy that's happening now. Why? Because we are errant, and science is our best guess at nature. The Bible is inerrant. The sci science is, is not. Now, I want to end with this last encouragement. Those of you, I want to speak to you, young adults, teenagers, college students who are considering pursuing the scientific field. Do it. Do it. Praise God. Run into it. Be an incredible scientist. Those of you who have given your life to science, you have a long career in science, awesome. Praise God. Why? Science is amazing. And when you are practicing science with all of your heart, you are bringing glory to God. Because he is the great inventor of all that is. And he said he made you in his image. So when you go about inventing, he's like, oh, that's my daughter. When you go about advancing and furthering technology and medicine, he says, that's my boy. Go be an incredible scientist. Stand firm on what you know is the word of God, unmovable, unwavering, and run into science and the scientific field and advance and make this city, make this society better through your advancements. Run and be a scientist. Be an incredible scientist. And know that you can be a scientist. You can love science and have a high view of science and stand firm on what you know about the scripture. There doesn't have to be attention there. But here's what I'm grateful is of absolute first importance. We may just, there may be things we don't totally understand about those secondary things. But this is what's absolutely crystal clear. You might have walked in here today burdened with fear, guilt, and shame, not knowing if you're really saved, if you'll make it to heaven, if you're good enough. But the Bible answers that question perfect clarity. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. Your sins are washed away. No more guilt. No more shame. No more past haunting you. It's all been paid for, past, present, and future. He died to pay for it, announcing forgiveness over you and rose again from the dead so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you will spend eternity in heaven. He was victorious over sin and death. And some of you need to put your faith in that claim. And let the creator who made everything 
make you into a new creation, washing you clean. Get a fresh start today. Put your faith in Jesus today. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're watching online, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let me just lead you in this prayer. If that's you, you want to take that step of faith and just silently right there repeat these words. Make them your own. In this quiet moment with God, just silently say this to him. I'm ready to be saved today once and for all, God. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for paying for my sins and offering me forgiveness. I believe Jesus died for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead. And I believe that I will spend eternity in heaven. Thank you for making me into a new creation. I have a fresh start today. I am saved. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.